Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, the following program is produced with a vengeance by Magic Matt Allen of the Outlaw Radio Network. I am the legendary Burl Bear, the man in the lawyer chair, Don Waldman. And we're going to talk about the Bible today, honoring your mother and father. <laughs> yes, <laughs> That's the, an intro. <laughs> the Whitakers of Sugarland, Texas, yes. were a happy family. Yep, even all bought, American family. All bought their kid a Rolex to celebrate his upcoming graduation. They come home from a nice dinner out. Bang, bang, bang. Ooh, an open and shut case? <laughs> well, not quite. Ladies and gentlemen, Corey Mitchell, who's written a book that someone described as disgusting in a... <laughs> but I think they meant the crime, Corey. How you doing, Corey? Uh, that's probably one of the nicer things somebody said. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's Kim Cantrell says... Uh, loyal readers of the genre will find themselves disgusted and appalled. <laughs> but electrifyingly <laughs> interested. Now that's a hell of a review. <laughs> Hey, those are, uh, those are great selling points. I appreciate that, Kim. <laughs> you know, that's really true. When you say something about that sold off the shelf. Oh, yeah, this is really a disgusting disgust story. Disgust away. Oh, yeah, appalling, horrifying. Oh, good, I'll buy that yeah, one. Yeah, but all, aren't they all that way, bro? Yeah. Lurid and shocking photographs. Don't forget that. Oh, yeah, disturbing is another one. 16 pages of disturbing photos. The only thing missing is lurid. <laughs> oh, yeah, they don't use the word lurid anymore, do they? No. That's true, you know, yeah. and nothing is more disturbing than seeing a graduation photo of somebody yeah. or, or, or a house. Uh, yeah, a house. I had a lot of dirt roads in one of my books. That were, there you go. That, Ooh, that was what killing. was so disturbing to the reader was that it was, they weren't gory enough. Why is it always Texas, Gory? You know, well, I grew up in Texas, and so uh, it's funny. I, I've lived in Texas and in California, and you can't pick two uh, more... Uh, perfect states to write true crime from. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm disgusted and appalled every day. <laughs> every day, and uh, I tell you, there's there's just never a shortage of bizarre, uh, fascinating stories in the state of Texas. I'm just uh, well, we do pretty well in California. There was a story this morning about an Orange County deputy that's been arrested because he was forcing women to have sex with his Labrador Retriever. God. That was that was that now was, that's disturbing and <laughs> I wish oh. I was making this up, but I'm not. Yeah, I'm glad you're not making it up. I'd worry about you a little bit if you're only were. sixty cases. Sixty. You heard me. Wow. Pitt is going to be all over this one. We have to get. Uh, they also charged him with pimping. <laughs> well, say that again, Doug. They charged him with pimping, and I'm not exaggerating. Pimp my dog. <laughs> Oh, you're, kid, you're not kidding, right? No, I heard this on the news this morning, and I said, what? <laughs> Pimp my dog. I okay. think the show's done, guys. I yeah, can't top I can, that. can't top that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for being with us, Corey. Uh, <laughs> it's my pleasure. Now I'm going to go have some disturbing dreams. <laughs> Before you go, however, uh, tell us a little bit about this disturbing story. I, I have the book right here, but I'm not going to read the entire thing aloud to our listening audience. I think they should buy it for themselves. But the beginning of the book itself, the opening chapter, is so upsetting. Can you just set the scene for us, Corey? Absolutely. Uh, Savage Sun, this is my seventh book now, and uh, this is actually in a, home, uh, a town called Sugarland, Texas. It's right outside of Houston. I grew up in Pearland, Texas, about 20 minutes away, and uh, Sugarland is very much on the upscale of the outskirts of Houston, the uh, 
you've, you've got guys from all the Houston professional sports teams like the Houston Astros, the Rockets, uh, the Texans that live out in Sugar Land, lots of multi-million dollar homes, a lot of money. It's uh, you know all based from Imperial Sugar Company, mm. and so there's a lot of leftover money and then a lot of uh, flights from Houston that migrated to Sugar Land. And within those communities, one of those families that was doing fairly well for themselves was the Whitaker family, and that consisted of Kent and his wife, Tricia, and their two sons, Bart and Kevin. And uh, very much your typical all-American family, uh, mom and dad, uh, you know, mom's a teacher, dad works for his wife's uh, father's business, uh, the uh, two kids are in high school and in college, and uh Looking to you know, that just sounds those. like father knows best or something like that. You know, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's like yeah, too absolutely. I'm, I'm expecting Fred McMurray to walk through at any time. <laughs> That's right? it. Yeah, that, that would that would be <laughs> appalling and disgusting right there. That's the image. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, really, it's just the uh, all American apple pie religious Texans uh, scenario. Uh, very religious family. And what is happening on, on this particular night in uh, 2004 is that uh, Bart Whitaker, the oldest son. Uh, is graduating from college from Sam Houston State University. Cause to uh, celebrate. Uh, yeah, yeah, everybody's uh, very excited. He's come back home. They're going to have their big uh, graduation party. So And they even uh, give mom, him a Rolex. Well, yeah, mom and dad are going to, you know, let's surprise him with a, a very fancy gift, a $4,000 Rolex watch. Uh, Bart already has a $30,000 SUV. He has a $100,000 condominium that he lives in. Uh, paid for by the parents, and uh, they're here to celebrate with their kid and take him out to dinner. And so they all decide they're going to go eat over at Papado's Seafood Restaurant, very close to their house. Uh, just very go out early, have some great food, have a few drinks, have some nice dessert, then come back home and prepare for the graduation ceremony the following day. And what, uh, unbeknownst to uh, mom, dad, and Kevin, Bart's brother, is that one of Bart's friends is actually hiding out inside their house uh, in their gated community in Sugarland and is waiting with uh, with a gun in hand. And he's uh, dressed in black from head to toe with a mask and gloves, the whole works. And uh, basically what's happened, Bart comes, you know, they go out to eat, they celebrate, they come back, they go into the house, and Bart's brother Kevin uh, is leading the way to go into the door and uh, he's walking up to the door with mom and dad following, and then Bart says, I'll be right back. I'm going to go check my cell phone in the car. So Bart walks out to the street while everybody else in the family walks into the house, and as soon as they open the door, Kevin Whitaker is shot uh, immediately, um, and then followed by Tricia, his mother, and then followed by Kent. And then Bart uh, heroically runs up the driveway into the house, darts over everyone's bodies, and tackles the intruder, uh, but and gets shot in the process. But oh, that's, he, where painful. Did, where, that's, 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 of, that's a painful part of the body, that's right? What I was in the process. Say, where did he get shot? Uh, Bart was shot up in the uh, shoulder. Um, Flesh wound. I'm sorry. Flesh wound. Well, you know that's uh, could be, could be, maybe not. And uh, but that's part of the the guys is that they want everybody to believe that uh, you know Bart was heroic and he also was shot, and so he obviously could not be involved in this. And, of course, the intruder escapes. Uh, there's a getaway car parked on the backside of the neighbor's house, uh, which takes the shooter with them. They take off. And then police arrive. Uh, his brother, Kevin, actually died fairly quickly. Uh, his mother, Tricia, however, was uh, still alive. 
but she was fading fast. They actually had to call in life flight helicopter, uh, fly into the neighborhood and try to get her out. She died in, in transit from the house to the hospital. Mm. And then uh, Kent Whitaker, the father, uh, was, you know, of course, they thought he was going to die too, but he actually survived, as did Bart. So you have two deaths. You have the brother, the mother, uh, and then the two attempted murders on the father and the uh, and Bart Whitaker. Now, i got and, a question for you here, Corey. Yeah, uh, maybe I'm getting ahead of the story here, but... But they're celebrating the fact that their son's graduating college and they give him a Rolex. In real life, this kid hadn't been going to college. He's been sitting around playing video games and plotting the murder of his parents. Don't tell uh, the truth. <laughs> uh, several times. And, and not only had he not been going to college, he didn't even have enough credits to be considered a, a true freshman. <laughs> As in a freshman to become a sophomore. So here he is, you know, graduating senior in college. And uh, truly wasn't even about, you know, didn't even have the ability to be a sophomore. Well, did the parents ever, like said, will ever see his grades or say, how you doing in school, son? You, you know, that's the bizarre thing on this whole thing, is how in the world as a parent can you not know what in the heck your kids are up to in college? Especially when you're paying all the bills and you're covering everything. You would figure that the main uh, criteria would be, all right, let me see your grades, and then I'll be able to fork over some more money if you're passing all your classes. Pretty easy and, to forge uh, your grades. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure he could find somebody. He was a smart guy, and he was hooked up with the right people, so I'm sure he could fake that. But they just—they never even asked. They just assumed, well, Bart's telling us the truth. And so I don't know if it's just complete naivete, stupidity, or uh, or neglect. Um, but, yeah, they had no clue that Bart was actually nowhere near graduating from college. Uh, Corey, it just seems like it's a motiveless crime. It doesn't sound like it was an attempted burglary. Isn't that part of the problem for Bart? A lot of people, including the DA, wanted to argue that this was actually a financially motivated crime, uh, that mom and dad had a lot of insurance. Bart wanted to take them out so he could collect the insurance, uh, which would be well over a million dollars. The thing is, he already had everything he needed. I mean, he already had a trust fund that he had access to. He already had, you know, a very nice car, a very nice place to live, uh, you know, he had a beautiful girlfriend. Everything that you would figure that somebody coming out of college would be neat, you know, would be set up and ready to enjoy life with. So does he bump him off just because he doesn't want to get back to Rolex? Or is he going to find out he wasn't graduating? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, the serious side on that, I kind of go into it a little bit in the book where, to me, I think this is strictly a case of boredom. Boredom? Yeah, you know, which to me makes this case even more frightening. That I think that Bart would thought he was so smart and so much uh, more superior than everyone around him, including his own family, that he wanted to pull his uh, you know 21st century version of Leopold and Loeb and see if he could commit the perfect murder and get away with it. Even, though, even though it's his family. Even though it's his family, and he almost got away with it. Well, it is so bizarre in the in the uh, trial. If my memory serves me well, because I have actually. Well, not read every single word of your book, but enough to skim it <laughs> in time for the show. Hey, don't say that on air, man. Come on. Come on. I, I will read the entire book. I promise you that, Corey. I was calling you John Stewart, you know. I, I didn't read the book. My, my interns uh, told me about it. Though. No, no. I, I go farther than that. I actually do look at the words on the page. He talks about feeling that he was invisible to his parents, that his parents gave all the attention to his brother, and that he was not really noticed in the family. Well, he obviously had a good motive. 
Yeah, there you Jeez. go. Okay. Hey, Bart, we sympathize. We understand. No, it, it, that's it's all ludicrous. You know, Bart Whitaker is a supreme liar. And uh, whether he, maybe he believed that himself, he convinced himself that his parents uh, did not love him as much as they loved Kevin. But well, in that case, one of the Smothers brothers would have killed the other one by now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, imagine being a Wayans brother in that situation. You know, so it's uh, no, it, it's ludicrous. You know, mom and dad really spent a lot of time with their kids. Um, they, they, of course, doted on him financially. They doted on him emotionally. And uh, I just think it was just a case that mom and dad were very religious people and son wasn't, and he was in college, and he was doing drugs, and he was bored out of his skull. And he just thought, hey, what a great thing to do. I'll just kill my family. That'll make my life exciting. And uh, Which, again, I think that's what makes this even more frightening than just... How did the police break this case? Uh, it it went on for months and months. Uh, basically, it was it was actually very bizarre. Within uh, within two or three days, one of Bart's buddies uh, came forth to the lead detective on the case and said, I, "I think Bart has wanted to do this before, and the reason why I know that is because he wanted me to kill his parents too." Oh. So it, it turns out that there are multiple plots before the actual murder uh, to where Bart uh, got together with a lot of different groups of friends. And we're not just talking, you know, bums or hooligans or anything. We're talking uh, National Merit Scholarship award winners. That were <laughs> oh, God. I, I don't think they did very well on the uh, moral intelligence test. <laughs> yeah, they failed the ethics portion, I guess. So it's uh, these really good kids that were, you know, good students, came from very upstanding, uh, higher strata from the economic uh, families, and, uh, again, I th what Bart Whitaker would do is he would find people, though, that would have some kind of weak point, and he would exploit that weakness. Uh, for instance, one of the guys was uh, recently suffered the loss of a girlfriend in a car accident. And so this guy was very down and depressed, and Bart would just kind of constantly feed on that and be there for him when he needed an ear to talk about his girlfriend. And at the same time, he started bringing up, hey, what do you think? Wouldn't it be cool if we killed my parents? We that sounds like fun. Yeah, it's like you know, just wow. a scenario that I'm dreaming up. And of course, they would just be stupid and say, "Oh yeah, well, you know, you would want to do this. You'd want to, you know, push the family over a cliff in a car." Well, how about a fire? Thing. Didn't didn't he try to get someone to burn the place down and burn him too? Just enough exactly. To... They wanted to actually go to uh, one of his relatives' uh, lake houses and have the entire family inside, lock them all in, and then set the place on fire. And he would be inside, and he would miraculously escape from the fire uh, to save the day, which meant that everybody else died except for him. Uh, so, but that plot did not actually come to fruition. God, what and, a sweetheart. Uh, yeah, so that's, these, these plots went on for actually for a period of years. So it wasn't just all of a sudden he came up with this idea. It's, you know, he had been thinking about this for years on how he was going to do this. And uh, as far as the police efforts on this, like I said, a guy came forward to tell them that Bart had this plan. Uh, they did not have a lot of evidence against Bart right away, uh, and it, so it actually took several months, and about seven months after the murders, uh, Bart had actually moved back home with his dad, lived in the house where his family was killed, wow. and uh, wow. he and his dad uh, basically spent a lot of time reading uh, religious books and reading 
self-help books, all based around oh, to try to, to help them get through this trauma of yeah, having they lost the brother and the mother. They're rebonding. Exactly. exactly. But he and didn't like his dad in the first place. Yeah, he tried to have his dad killed. So, <laughs> and he didn't like and, his brother either. Well, he didn't like his mom either. I mean, was, he didn't like any of these people. And uh, but yeah, he tried to create this this atmosphere that uh, he was fine, and he and dad were were bonding over this tragedy together. And finally, he got wind that the police were finally sniffing up his trail, that they were about to arrest him. So he took off to Mexico. Yeah, but he, they, here's a guy with with a lot of wealth behind him. When he takes off to Mexico, what is he? he's got a backpack, uh, you know, a change of shorts, and a big wad of cash in his pocket. Yeah, some some you know, some uh, hair bleach so he could change his hair color. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he saw the fugitive. Wow. Exactly, exactly. And yet, so, uh, I mean, here's yeah, so that's... Excuse me. Here's a guy. Here's a guy who, uh, at least according to what I read in the book, <laughs> that everyone saw him as a happy guy, uh, you know, with a upbeat, positive attitude, good-looking fella, and oh, yet, yeah. and yet, he did confide to people that he never got along with his folks, hated his brother, he wasn't as happy as he was obviously projected. Yeah, but I've heard that from other uh, of my contemporaries when I was growing up. You never assume they're going to kill him. Well, yeah, that is kind of crossing the social line. Right. I mean, matricide is a horrible crime. Well, and he starts making up stories about being adopted. Uh, that was a big a big trend for him, too, was just telling him that he was adopted. And, uh, well, what was my brother, son going to kill me because he's adopted? I, mean, I got something to worry right? about. Right, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, watch out Angelina Jolie, you know. Aye. <laughs> <laughs> Come on after this guy, uh, but, I mean, Did they yeah, do a so psychoanalysis just, on this guy? There were a couple of uh, a couple of them actually, and ironically, one of them said, "This guy's a Looney Tunes, and uh, you need to run steer, you know, run as far away from him as you can." And they basically ignored it. And by they, I mean the parents basically just said, "Oh well, they don't really know what they're talking about, and our son wouldn't be like that." And, and basically, the reason why he had these psych tests run was that in high school he got in trouble for stealing uh, lots of computer gear from his mom's school. Uh, as well as a couple of other schools. And, uh, yeah, so one of the tests run basically said, this guy has serious sociopathic tendencies. You need to monitor him closely. He is a potential danger to society. And then uh, a second one was more along the lines of, yeah, he's narcissistic and an ego egomaniac, but he's pretty harmful, you know, pretty harmless. Um, so, again, you know, so-called well, experts yeah. out Well, parents don't want to believe bad things about their kids. And, right. you know, he looks nice. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's a good kid. You know, he's he was at all the family events. He and his dad rode the MS-150 bicycle ride together every year. Uh, he went to church with his family, even though he didn't like it. And, uh, yeah, he, all, by all appearances, he was, uh, he was a kid on his way to success. Well, now he's on death row. I don't think that's... Maybe that's where he wanted to go. He did Maybe say, that's his form he, of success that he was looking for. Well, he, he said that even when he was doing the, the robberies, that he wanted to get caught. Right. So uh, yeah. he, he wanted to get caught. Which sounds like a lot of serial killers, too, after they've done so many killings and they've kind of reached their peak. You know, they make sloppy mistakes. They, you know, they want to get caught because they, they want, want the people. credit. And yeah, on top of it, he had, what they were capable of doing. He had absolutely no exit strategy, just in case. Well, and I, and I think that goes again to this whole perfect crime mentality that he had. Is that yeah, he wanted to get away with it, but you know, after a couple of years of having gotten away with it, well, nobody really knew it. 
what good is getting away with it? <laughs> that's right. If, yeah, that's that that comes with that whole ego thing that the Absolutely. sociopaths and psychopaths have, which would make them great movie producers, is they want that's credit. Right. <laughs> and authors, too, right? Yeah, that's right. I, I, I didn't want to say uh, it, because I'm outnumbered here. Well, you're, you're an attorney, Don, so watch it. <laughs> there, are more, there are more attorney jokes than there are author jokes, trust me. Well, there you I'll, go. I'll make up for it Plus, with you. I'm not sporting a Rolex watch. I've got more like an X-Files $15 job. Oh, yeah. hey, you're doing better yeah. than I am. I got the Walgreens $5 blue plastic special on today. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Bart exhibits all those traits and more, and uh, yeah, and, and it carries on even now while he is on death row through his correspondence with. Uh, he really has a, a set of. I don't know if it's so much hot and heavy now as it was a couple of years ago, but there's a, a handful of uh, young women out there who uh, correspond with Bart. Oh yeah, yeah. we've heard this what with a, every major killer. Oh yeah, it, it's, and that's, uh, they were attacking me when I found when they found out that I was going to write this book, and uh, oh, there was an internet campaign to put a stop to me writing this book. Oh, and, what was the what was the reason for that? What great logic was brought into play? Oh, there there is no logic. It's well, just what you know, Mark's logic? innocent. He shouldn't be. This shouldn't have this book written about him because he's innocent. Yeah, that's why he's on death row. Well, and, that's also good publicity exactly. for your book. So, yeah, exactly. So. Uh, yeah, you get that. And actually, I thought I was going to get a lot more negative uh, feedback after the book came out from um, the groupies, but uh, they honestly haven't said anything because I think that the uh, I think the shimmer of or, you know the glimmer on Bard is starting to fade, and uh, a lot of that is because he spent a lot of time on TV. He was oh, on he Oprah, Oprah yeah. Oh, yeah, he's he on oh. 2020, 48 Hours. He did all this stuff. This was before. And I think people started oh, I to realize, wow, this guy is kind of a kind of an evil scumbag. But he went on both before and after. Yeah, I don't mean absolutely. before the murder, but I mean after the murder happened, before he was arrested, and then wasn't he on after he was arrested? No, he did, he didn't do anything before. He didn't. I mean, he, he did not do anything before. Everything that happened came on after. Uh, basically, it all started. His first airing was on the Forty Eight Hours program. Which was while he was in tr on trial. Oh, his defense uh, lawyer. Forty-eight hours that. actually went down to Fort Bend County. They set up cameras. They, you know, they even put a camera behind a clock behind the judge, um, and they shot it from from day one. And that's that was his first big national exposure. Uh, of course, after he was convicted, and then uh, and then from there he went to uh, you know, Twenty Twenty and Justice Files and Oprah Winfrey. Well. The Oprah Winfrey angle actually came from his father. Yeah, I wanted to get into that. I mean, here's the dad. That's a whole other story into, uh, unto itself. So I, I brought that one up. His dad must have had a real problem with his son having murdered the family. You would think, but actually he forgave the killer the night of the murder. So as, he's, uh, as Kent Whitaker is sitting in his hospital with the bullet inside of his body, knowing that his, uh, that his youngest son is dead and that his wife is basically dying, he wasn't quite sure until a little bit later. Uh, he basically had a religious epiphany in the hospital and instantaneously forgave the killer. Ah. Instantaneously. I mean, that night. You know, and uh, more power to him if that's what gets him through the day. Uh, for me personally, if I, I just can't see forgiving anybody. For then on top of it, he stays in that same frame of mind after he finds out it's his son. Yeah, and it probably, if anything, gets even more intense about his support for Bart. Um, you know, like I said, that seven months after the murder and before Bart ran off, 
He didn't know Barr did it. There was speculation and whispering going on, but he just thought it was all ridiculous. And then when Bart took off, uh, there's, there's, this has not been proven, but there's been speculation that Dad gave Bart $10,000 to go to Mexico, but nobody can actually prove that. Well, maybe so, he figured his son was being unjustly hounded. Yeah, and that's, you know, and they have a family attorney who's one of the top attorneys in Texas, too, who also, uh, you know, voted against what Bart wanted to do. I mean, they never actually discussed this is what I'm going to do. Um, but I just think that, uh, yeah, I think Kent thought, you know, there's no way my son could have done this. Uh, Bart here, you know, take this money, do what you need to do to take care of yourself, not knowing he was going to cross the border and become a fugitive. And, um, yeah, but Kent, uh, you know, once about a year and a half later after Bart came back or was brought back to the States, uh, Kent was by his side from day one. And, uh, you know, the father was was there to support him. I love my murdering matricidal son. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I'm just... So when you I don't know, you know, it, it, there's a whole religion, you know, and, and Kent Whitaker wrote a book well, on Well, that's what book. I was going to get to. When you went to write this and you found out his dad was doing a book... What did you do? Did you, uh, tell me about can that. I cur- can, I, can I curse on there? Yeah. <laughs> I just said, oh, shit. <laughs> because I can't... I don't like uh, case... I don't like books on... I'm sorry, I don't like multiple books on single cases. Of course. Um, and I've always tried to, I've always avoided, I've, I've dropped books that I wanted to do when I found out somebody else had already right. started on one. Or, but what too, is, the first yeah. thing I did on this one, actually, I was like, you know, I just, I can't see this, knowing what I know about Kent Whitaker, I can't see this being a direct competitor to what I'm writing. So I actually started finding out what is everything that I could, and I found out that his book was going to be released through a religious imprint. Oh, hello. Uh, so I'm like, okay, that's going to tell me something very important, that Kent's story is going to be, my family's shot, and I forgave my son, and you two can forgive uh, people in your life. In these interviews that he did on all of these shows, I'm talking about Bart, did he ever acknowledge the crime? Yeah, he actually does. Uh, he actually, you know, he, he even admitted it. He even testified in trial that he was responsible for this. But there's a strong sense of aloofness uh, while admitting to it. So it's almost, again, it's almost maybe is this more bragging about it? Uh, well, oh yeah, yeah. In fact, I I seem to recall bragging about it. I seem to recall. Uh, yeah, now yeah, that you mentioned it, you yeah, know. <laughs> in, in your brilliant book, Savage Son, which everyone should buy and read at the earliest opportunity. Uh, he says to the uh, the prosecutor uh, on the stand, he says like about the jurors. You know, I feel bad for the jurors because I'm sure they had better things to do than to listen to all this. <laughs> he does his remember remorse for the crime, but gee, it's yeah. too, I'm sure they had better things to do than listen He's to this story. He's such a nice guy. Yeah, he, he was concerned about the jury. You know, He's a very considered young man. You know, and <laughs> uh, yeah, it's ludicrous. It's again, like I said, he admits it, but uh, he, he doesn't really shed. If he sheds a tear, it's obviously a crocodile tears, and uh, it's it's very apparent that he wanted people to know exactly what he did and how he did it, and and not only what he did, but how he convinced other people to do his work for With him. Bragging rights. Bragging rights. So it's it to me. There's a lot. I don't even say this in the book, but to me, there's a lot of. Uh, David Koresh, Charles Manson, Jim Jones going on with Bart Whitaker, and that he is able to convince these highly intelligent, uh, capable people with lots of potential in their futures to go out and commit murder. Did and, you ever have uh, occasion to interview any of the principals involved in this? 
Uh, not as many as I normally do in most books. I found that very bizarre also because uh, I think this was a Sugarland thing. There was a, just a, a not a moratorium on it, but there, it was very hard to get a lot of people to talk to me. Um, so I did everything I could. Mainly I got a lot of the authorities that were involved, a lot of the cops and the attorneys. What happened when uh, you tried to the, contact the father, Kent? I uh, never, heard, never heard from him, not once, and uh, I assumed that I would hear from him. Yeah, I would uh, think so, too, because he was doing the book on you. I forgive my matricidal son, so can you. <laughs> and uh, you're, t- <laughs> you're, just, you're doing this book. You'd think there'd be some communication. You know, once again, well, if you made this as a novel, nobody would believe it. Exactly. Yeah, it's, well, you know, we hadn't really talked about his, his buddies that actually pulled the trigger and drove the car, too that, uh, you know, these guys he was able to convince. and uh, You're saying, guys, who was involved in this? Well, the, the, the night of the murders was uh, Stephen Champagne, a uh, former Marine uh, who was also going to college that Bart went to school, uh, lived in the, the same apartment complex or condo complex with. Uh, and then, um, uh, I don't even, I can't even remember everybody's name. There's so many people involved in it. <laughs> how many people did he have? That's what I was leading up to. Well, how many were there involved? He had uh, three different groups before it actually happened, but Chris Brashear was the actual killer. He was the guy that actually pulled the trigger. And what did he get? Again, he, uh, basically, well, he struck a deal. Uh, Chris, and that, the, here's where there's more controversy, like supporters of Bart are mad because Bart got the death penalty, yet uh, Chris Brashear was able to actually get a deal uh, by testifying, or by basically saying Bart did it. You know, Bart yeah, would they have convicted it. Bart without his testimony is always the issue. Uh, yeah, they would have. Um, without without his, they would have, because the other guy, the driver, also testified against him. Uh, and then there was also a lot of, uh, not a ton of physical evidence, but they used a lot of uh, police dogs or scent dogs in the case um, that were able to track. No one was from... pimping those dogs, were they? Uh, I'm well, sorry? Never mind. <laughs> Go ahead. Were these people promised money? Oh, oh! As far as for, uh, committing the murders, right, right, they uh, were they were promised the concept of money. <laughs> oh, the well, concept of well, money. What does that mean? <laughs> the they were never actually given a dollar amount. It was never okay, Chris. You're going to get a quarter of a million bucks, Steve. You're going to get a quarter of a million bucks. I'm going to get a quarter of a million bucks if we do this. It was just, hey, man, my mom and dad have this killer insurance policy. If we kill them, you know, we'll get money, and I'll hook you guys up. Yeah, you'll get what's coming to you. You'll get what's coming to you. I'll give you my Rolex. Yeah, right. <laughs> so no, there was ever there was never any hardcore. Uh, well, these other guys were were, were fairly. Well, I mean, they're living in the same condo complex and running in the same social circle that he was. These folks have also are guys with money, right? Not really. They oh. they were more uh, like Stephen lived with his mother in the condo, um, and Chris was actually in that area, and then uh, he actually worked, uh, both these guys worked with Bart uh, at the, what's called the Bentwater Country Club, which is a, a, a ritzy, upscale restaurant for uh, you know, very well-to-do people um, about an hour north of Houston. And so they actually, he met most of these guys through his work. And then after what they would do is Bart, who was actually running a restaurant, again, here's Bart, he's doing very well, um, you know, he's smart enough to run this, uh, highfalutin Country Club's main restaurant, and uh, he would uh, hold parties every night after work and invite most of the employees over, including Chris and Steve. And yeah, you know, give them here's some beer and here's some liquor in the in the in the cabinet. And basically, these guys were just completely in awe of uh, Bart Whitaker. 
And uh, I mean, he's, time, he's a very charismatic guy, had an upbeat personality, good looking, and he had a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, you know, good looking, like I said, beautiful fiance. Oh, what, uh, what happened? Too, I bet she to... was pissed when she found out her wealthy future husband was a killer. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, she actually comes from a very wealthy family herself. So she was actually doing very, very well. Thank you very much. And, uh, but it was bizarre because Bart actually asked her to marry him probably within just a couple of months after having his family killed. Well, he knew he had the money coming now. Well, yeah, plus yeah. it cuts down on the guest list. Well, no, he, he didn't have the money coming because he didn't kill his dad. Oh, that's, that's right. right. That of course. was the thing. So they screwed up the whole plan. <laughs> I mean, I don't, again, I don't say this to a whole lot of people, but and I definitely didn't say this specifically in the book, but this story has so much bizarre, dark humor. And this is in no way a disrespect to Patricia or Kevin Whitaker at all, but, you know, all of these failed plans that go awry, it's not just guys sitting around and talking. It's like we drive up to the house. We go in, and Bart's supposed to have an alarm system set off. We open up the window, and boom, Bart forgot to set the alarm or turn the alarm off. You know, run away, run away. That's one. A second one with a wow. different set of guys is they're going to drive all the way down from Waco, Texas, down to Houston to kill the family. Bart steals a car from a friend, uh, sends his shooter to be in the car to go down, and uh, and you, you've got to forgive me for a second here. My my father-in-law is in the hospital with cancer, oh. and he's calling here, so. Oh. Uh, Burl, can you, uh, can you sure. break away for a moment, yeah, please? Yeah, we'll, we'll break away for a moment. I'm really sorry. I'll be right back. Okay. Let's go. We'll let him take care of these uh, family emergencies. We would take a uh, short 60-second break if our producer was in the <laughs> but, he's, but he's not. Uh, we'll promo some upcoming shows uh, on the week after next. Are we finally going to have him appear now? Yes, the real Ricky Ross. The this real... is the first time we've had a guest who was not able to appear because his parole officer wouldn't <laughs> let him. <laughs> this time, the parole officer knows that he's coming to Outlaw Radio. Or we... I don't know if that's good or not, Pearl. <laughs> but the, the real, the real Rick Ross, not the fake rapper who's took his name, but the real Freeway Ricky Ross, who was doing two million dollars a day. In cocaine sales, got to the point as as he said the one interview I heard. Oh, he was a celebrity in this town for a while. We were just tired of counting the money. He said, "Rick, do we have to count any more money?" <laughs> if I had to get those machines, um, <laughs> machines to do it. And you saw the one film that was made about him called "What a Hundred Kilos." I haven't seen that one. Yeah, but it's not really watched. It's a very yeah. mediocre kind of a film. Well, Nick Cassavetes is doing one right now. I don't know Nick, but you probably might know his, his dad, John. Hey, Burl. Yeah. Hey, this is Corey. I apologize. It's very unprofessional of me. No, Forgive no, me that's that. perfectly all right. Is it all forgiven? Everything okay? Uh, well, he's he's doing pretty bad, but uh, he's uh, he's just calling to talk to my wife, but she's actually not here right now because she knows I have an interview. So. No, <laughs> so I'll get the dog and get out of the house. <laughs> uh, get out of the house. Well, you know, we've got we're selling our house right now. We've had four home. We actually had four showings today, so life is good, man. Oh, so, so you, you at least you're doing well enough. You can upscale, move, move well, out. Of you know, I, I can't afford a four thousand dollar Rolex watch, but. <laughs> <laughs> You're just moving in the wrong social circles. You're hanging yeah, exactly. out with all those rock and rollers and horror movie makers. Bizarre. Oh, yeah. I'm hanging out with all the degenerates, so. <laughs> and also the other true crime authors like Burl Bear. Oh, yeah, that's scary. Is, that's scary. is his father still defending what he did? Absolutely. Yeah, that's... What, uh, is, his, what is he saying? Uh, he's just saying that my son made a mistake, and I forgive him. And God will forgive him, and it's up to Bart to uh, make him, you know, the very... I, I have a, a family member who's very religious, and we have this discussion all the time about murderers and killers, and, and 
can they really truly be saved um, if they just do the right things and while they're in prison and, and ask for forgiveness and all that? And I think that's basically what Kent Whitaker is doing. Is that so? He's going to you know, do a couple hail marys and everything's okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, whatever gets you through the day. Uh, <laughs> well, he's know. on death row, isn't he? Yeah. Dad, that is correct. Yes, he is scheduled to be executed. Oh, they don't have a date yet, but he is uh, on that. Well, on this is row. this is Texas. They used to have an express lane that kind of went through the Dairy Queen and then to the Lethal Injection. Yeah, it's kind of like a Home Depot with their, you know, you check it out yourself kind of thing sometimes. <laughs> and, and I think Bart wants to be executed, too, which I think would just simply add to his uh, mystique. Um, but uh, Well, most often they put him in death row in a cell that's about six by eight feet. It's not exactly a pleasant place to be. Yeah, he's definitely not living in the high life anymore at all. So, uh, but yeah, it's uh, yeah. Well, the father. Uh, well, plus, he enjoying, of course, with his ego as huge as it is. He must be absolutely delighted that there's this brand new book by best-selling author Corey Mitchell, Savage Son. That's all about him. All about him. His dad wrote a book all about him. Oprah Winfrey decided that she'd like to talk to him. Uh, he also has a blog called Minutes Before Six, uh, which is all Bart. Uh, he's got oh, a Facebook Bart, page, a MySpace page, and it's basically it's it's funny because if you go to Bart Whitaker's blog and you read you know, the beginning intro, this is not going to be an anti-death row blog. This is not going to be about how innocent I am. Well, you know, two and a half years later, that's all it is, and it's also everything that's wrong with the uh, Texas prison system. And uh, and how the death penalty is, uh, is 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 you know is not the proper punishment tool, and that's all it's become. It's just a, a bitch session for him to uh, complain. And he about. probably is by now too. That's kind of a good side, I guess. The, the murder took place on December tenth, two thousand three, and I gather he just didn't want to ruin Christmas. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I, I think it was all about the Rolex. <laughs> comes down to you keep going back to that Rolex. Well, bro. yeah, I mean, yeah, you got to think of that watch, bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Christopher Walken and the and yeah. the watch scene. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I won't even bring it up. In that. <laughs> well, you know, it, it it's just that that oh the 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 opening of the book with they're so proud of him graduating college, taking him out to dinner, giving him this gorgeous watch. The whole time he's sitting there enjoying this meal, he knows he knows there's someone waiting in the house to murder mom, dad, and brother. And, oh, it, yeah. and it doesn't affect him whatsoever. Well, and, and even the pictures in the book are indicative of that, where you know they take a picture of him with, you know, opening up the Rolex box with a huge smile on his face. He's at the restaurant with a congratulations plate with a huge smile, sitting right in between mom and, and, and his brother. And he's also play-acting to show how innocent he is. Exactly. We're going to take a short break, Corey. We'll be right back in 60 seconds with Corey Mitchell on True Crime Uncensored. There's only one thing worse than children who kill. The mother who made them do it. Mom said kill. The mother, Barbara Opal, promised her 14-year-old daughter a brand new dirt bike if she and her little friends would murder her employer. I'll tell you one thing. 
the kid never got the dirt bike. Mom, Mom said, said kill, kill by legendary true crime writer Burl Bear. Available now wherever fine books are sold. From Pinnacle True Crime, Mom Said Kill. And now, back to True Crimes with Burl Bear and Don Waldman. And Corey Mitchell, author of the brand new bestseller, Savage Son. He's got so many bestsellers, it's uh, almost disgusting and horrifying. We were t- yeah, he is <laughs> prolific. We were talking uh, a little bit earlier about when you... More than one book about the same case. We have, there's uh, There were two books, uh, one of them by Caitlin Rother, about the uh, the woman in San Diego who allegedly uh, poisoned uh, her uh, husband with right. arsenic and then took the money to buy a boob job. Right, the Kristen Rossum case. And right. then it turns out that she was framed by the prosecutors and she's suing them for $20 million. Ooh, punchline. Wow, are you serious? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, on appeal, it came out that even the, the, uh, the prosecution went to the leading arsenic uh, expert and said, you don't have a case, this guy died of a heart attack. But they pursued the case anyway because they thought it would make wow. them famous. And the That's whole... actually one of the books that I was telling you about that I was very interested in that case. And that actually gotten uh, some documents from the courthouse because I was living out in California at the time. And uh, I think it was John Glass that had a book on it first. And uh, so when I, you know, when I heard, once I heard that he had, had done that story, I'm like, well, okay, that's, that's it for me. Now he has to I worry heard... about whether he's going to be a defendant. <laughs> wow, and then, uh, of course, you know, Caitlin did the book. And, uh, right, and Caitlin's book is excellent, too. Yeah, fabulous well. book, and then it just was announced uh, last week the uh, judge down there cleared the way for her to go ahead and sue for $20 million for uh, false arrest, false prosecution, because they knew from the get-go that uh, she didn't really do it. So has she been released yet? Yeah, oh, yeah, she's out. Wow, that is amazing. Well, I have, a, I have another interesting female release story. Uh, as well on, on my, my current book that I'm working on. What are you working on? Uh, I've got a case down here in San Antonio. Uh, it's a teacher named Diane Tilly uh, who was murdered by a father and daughter team. Ooh. And uh, murdered, raped, kidnapped, you know, tortured the whole bit. And uh, just about two weeks ago, Saturday as a matter of fact, uh, my killer committed suicide. Well, that's... On death row in Texas. That's pretty uh, tricky. Yeah, his name is Ronnie Joe Neal, and uh, Ronnie and his 15-year-old daughter, Pearl Cruz, uh, had killed Diane, uh, had both been convicted. And uh, not only did I find out that Ronnie kill, you know, possibly more than likely committed suicide, but his 15-year-old daughter is now actually out of, and a free woman after only about four years behind bars. That's because she was a child when this happened. Yeah, but in Texas, that doesn't always yeah, mean Yeah, and in Washington, it doesn't matter much either, because they look at the girl who didn't get the dirt bike. They don't treat <laughs> she was as, 14. They don't treat <laughs> them as juveniles, huh? How did he kill well, himself? Well, yeah, like in my last book, Pure Murder, one of the guys was a minor at the time, and uh, he was 14 at the time. And what they do is they reassess at 18, uh, you know, okay, well, the crime wasn't that bad, or it was pretty horrible, but he's been really good since he's been in CYA, and, uh, you know, the Children's Youth Authority, and um, you know, they make a decision based on that. Well, the guy in pure murder, he's going to be in there for another 40 years. He's How does this guy commit suicide on death row? They're watched. Well, you know, that's that's I, I, we don't know yet. I mean, uh, basically there's a talk that he's uh, basically uh, hoarding prescription pills. And the reason why everybody thinks it's suicide, and this makes it pretty obvious, is that about four hours or about six hours after he was uh, discovered dead in his cell, his sister received a letter um, that said, 
hey, when I'm dead, I want you to do this, and I want you to play this Tupac song at my funeral, and I want you to do this. You know, uh, oh, it's good to plan old. ahead. Oh, yeah. Well, that's oh, a bit different than uh, Paul St. Pierre, uh, <laughs> one of the uh, killers in the, my book uh, Headshot, who supposedly committed suicide in prison under a 15-minute you know, suicide right. watch. Right, right. Managed to commit suicide by shoving feces-filled toilet paper down his own throat, immediately following a fight with the guards. Mm, that's nice. What a coincidence. So much for lunch. Shocker. <laughs> that's a real common method of suicide, I'm sure. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that's, that would be first on my list if I wanted to go. So. Oh, God. That's amazing. Yeah, uh, this one, just with the letter going to the... And the letter, you know, I've seen all of Ronnie's uh, letters that he wrote during the trial, you know, the... Uh, to the parents and the judges and to the female attorneys and you know the prosecutors and it's it's his writing style it's his not only the the, the way it looks but also the verbiage he uses and you know, there's no doubt it's him that it's not just a forged letter that somebody sent it and they they whacked him so <laughs> but yeah that's uh that's interesting because that's the book i'm about to finish up and then uh turn that in and now it's like okay i've got to take a few more months because the, one of the uh, sergeants on the case called me up and said, well, I couldn't talk to you about this before, but now I want to talk with you for your book, and, you know, some more about it for your book, because I think he did multiple killings, and he's probably a serial killer. So, well, that's better than being, being held up for a year to get photos from a homicide task force. That's a nice <laughs> new chapter. Isn't that crazy? You, what book did you have to get held up for a year for photos? Body Count. That's because uh, okay. the, the prosecutors, that's the uh, Spokane serial killer case, the uh, killer, Robert Lee uh, Yates Jr., uh, cut a deal uh, to not get the death penalty by revealing where, you know, where the bodies were buried, that sort of thing. And every uh, prosecutors in both counties signed off on it. And then the prosecutor in Pierce County changed his mind and decided to prosecute for the murders over there so there would be a trial. And so all of a sudden... Everything went back into a holding pattern, and they wouldn't release the photos to me. Because they were in evidence. Yeah. That's so. amazing. Well, what do you think about Fred Rosen, our buddy Fred, uh, the true crime author who was writing a piece on a hiker that was killed for Hustler magazine? Did you hear about all that? No. No, what's that? Oh, I, go look it up, man. It's about three or four months ago. Fred, you remember Fred oh, Rosen? Sure, we've had him on the show, yeah. Yeah, Fred's a great guy. He's, a, he's one of our former bloggers at In Cold Blog, and... Uh, Oh, Fred was uh, doing a piece. I don't know the name of the case, but it was a hiker that was killed by some lunatic out of, uh, like, Georgia, maybe. And uh, I, I think it was a very, oh, it was a decapitation involved, the whole bit. And uh, Fred was writing a piece for Hustler magazine and was seeking uh, photographs for use, you know, whether it was for his own, uh, yeah, right. to write the book or whether it was to put it, I mean, uh, write the article. Or to put it actually in the magazine, I don't know. But I'm assuming it was just so he could describe the scene and everything. Well, needless to say, the uh, state legislature jumped all over that. You know, everybody starts screaming and hollering about access to crime scene photos, and he's not allowed to have that, and they struck up a wall. Simple and, question, mean, why? Why? Yeah, you know, with the usual reason that it's, uh, you know, not showing sensitivity to the family. Oh, now, in that particular the, on case, that basis, no book could be written. Exactly. Exactly. So I don't know. I'm not. I don't know all the specifics um, exactly on that. But yeah, you should definitely contact Fred and get him on here and talk to him about that. That is a weird one. Now I ran into a situation. I almost. I started to do a book about a case in Kansas. Turned out a Kansas author who was very good at, was already doing the book, so I dropped it. But I did talk to law enforcement there. And in Kansas, unlike some other states, uh, if you file for public disclosure to get the police documents, which you know 
I always do, get all the crime scene reports and everything. In that state, all they are obligated to give you is the cover page. What does that mean? Sounds like nothing. Nothing, exactly. You got it, Donald. (laughs) (laughs) And anything else they give you is purely at their personal discretion. Which means you get nothing. So you can file file a public... Yeah, the whole thing to Capote or what? Yeah, God only knows. You file a public disclosure request, you get the cover sheet. That's wow. it. That's bizarre. So I'm not doing well, any Kansas you know, cases. That's one of the things I'm looking forward to after I, I you know, finish with Savage Son and uh, and then the the book on Ronnie Joe Neal and Diane Tilly is then I'm I'm actually stepping away sort of from true crime for the next book. Which is a, a an autobiography with uh, Philip Anselmo, the lead singer of the heavy metal band Pantera. Now that sounds exactly up your up your alley. I was I was oh, going to get to that. Is all this true crime stuff is going to weigh heavy on you? You got to have your rock and roll. Absolutely, it's a great outlet. Yeah, it allows me to 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 realize that it's not all, not all about murder, death, mayhem, and you know, and uh, and baby puke. <laughs> <laughs> well, but wait, these are important things. <laughs> uh, of course, absolutely. But but ironically is that the uh, you know there's a, a fantastic story behind Pantera and Philip Anselmo. But uh, one of the things that actually does relate to true crime is that after the band Pantera broke up, the guitar player Dimebag Daryl went on to form another band called. Dan <laughs> God, Plan. I love that name, Dimebag Daryl. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, sadly, in 2004, Dimebag was shot and killed on stage while playing with his new band by a, a, a deranged ex-Marine uh, who thought that the band was stealing his lyrics uh, oh, mentally, oh, telepathically. God. Telepathically, no less. Yeah. And, uh, How are you going against these nuts, these wackos? Yeah. So, uh, so that's, you know, so there's the whole issue. Well, it's like Captain like Crunch said about sharks, there's no way you can reason with them. Exactly, and that's kind of surprising <laughs> because a lot of these, con- lot almost all these concerts that I'm aware of, they have very, very tight security. You got to go through metal detectors. Well, and a lot of it, especially in the last several years, has been because of this murder on stage too. Uh, this is a, it was kind of a throwaway night. The band, you know, the band usually at that point in time, when Pantera was big, they were, you know, Pantera's probably sold about 20 million records. They probably played, you know, 2,000 shows worldwide in front of millions of people. Um, as they got older and broke up and formed, you know, and Dimebag formed the new band, they were playing smaller venues. But even then, they were still playing two, 3,000 people a night. Uh, but this particular night in Columbus, Ohio, was a, a fill-in night, which is basically, hey, we've got to get from town A to B, right. and we've got a day off in between, we need to make some money, let's keep just playing another show, let's stick to So they literally booked the gig mm. while they're on tour and just uh, about a month before and stuck it in there. No good and it was deed a goes smaller unpunished. Venue. I'm sorry? No good deed goes unpunished. Yeah, I mean, it was just a smaller venue. Uh, definitely, uh, you know, from what everybody says, it was very, you know, it was very lax security. And the guy literally jumped over a wall to get in and then walked up the left side of the club and then crossed over to the side of the stage and just jumped on stage, walked right up to dime bag, shot him in the face about oh, three times. Turned around and uh, the uh, six foot eight, three hundred and fifty pound bodyguard named Mayhem jumped on stage to, to tackle him. He shot him dead instantly. A fan came up, tried to help Dimebag out, shot him and killed him. And then an employee did the same thing, shot and killed him. And then he took one of the uh, one of the uh, I think the guitar tech and uh, basically held him hostage. 
um, and was threatening to kill the guitar tech when a uh, police officer came in with a shotgun and literally blew his head off. Um, and uh, ended, it all happened in about four minutes. And the show got rave reviews probably because of this. Oh, oh yeah. Well, you know, it, it, in all honesty, that's actually... <laughs> Well, and ironically, it was it was the same day that John Lennon was murdered. Um, you know, several decades later, and for heavy metal fans, Dimebag Daryl was John Lennon level of of steadliness, of godliness on the guitar, of being. You know, not only was he a phenomenal musician, and this is all stuff everybody said long before he died. This is not angelicizing the guy after the fact, uh, but he was he was just phenomenal on the guitar, and he was the coolest funniest, craziest guy in the scene of metal. Everybody that knew Dimebag loved him. You know, they have all these videos that they put out way before the Jackass videos where it was like, you know, their band days on the road, shooting fireworks at each other, causing mayhem, <laughs> getting in trouble. And uh, he was just a really, a truly lovable guy. And uh, so, yeah, so there's a whole, there is a bit of a true crime angle there. And, uh, you know, Philip uh, literally died after a, a show in Dallas. Um, his band had a uh, the number one album in the country uh, back in 1994. Had an album called Far Beyond Driven. It was the first metal band to actually uh, debut an album at number one on the Billboard charts. And uh, just a few, about a week before that, um, when the album came out, he found out that at age 24 he had a broken back Ooh. and uh, had broken several vertebrae. Uh, but management, the band, the fans, everybody wanted. Pantera to go out on the road and support their new number one album in the country. This is such a change of pace. What drew you to the story? I've just I've been a long time metal fan for years. I was a DJ in college. I did the metal show. I, I, I blog on the side just for fun. It's something like keeps me sane from what I write about with true crime. And uh, I've just been a huge Pantera fan. Actually, it's ironic because Pantera had been around since the early '80s. Uh, before Philip the singer was actually in the band, there was another singer, and I was already a fan of them before he even joined. So uh, that's actually helped me with him, you know, getting getting this gig, riding with him, is that he already knew I was a hardcore Pantera fan before he even had heard of the band. And uh, I just followed their career. I was a big fan. I'd probably seen them 25 times live, um, you know, had everything on vinyl, the whole bit. And uh, was hey, really... You get to wind up writing the book, so that's kind of, uh, kind of a big payoff for being a fan. It, it is. It's, you know, all that, as I, I usually say about myself, I'm, I'm, I'm a vertebral cornucopia of worthless information. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or as Johnny Cosmo says about me, an encyclopedia falling down a flight of stairs. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, You're all the like, same, Burl. Yeah, we're all the same. Corey, thank you so much for another oh. fast-paced hour. The latest book is called Savage Son by Corey thank Mitchell. Nice work, Corey. Hey, guys, it's always a pleasure. I really enjoy talking with you. Okay, talk Burl, to you soon. Burl, 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 let's talk about that blurb, man. I'll get you a great blurb on your new book. I can't oh. wait for everybody to get their hands on it. Oh, so. thank you, Corey. I'll send you the manuscript. <laughs> guys, thanks so much. You bet. Bye-bye. Swell guy. Isn't great he? Guy. Yeah. And, and he's so prolific, one book to the other. Boy, one, yeah, he, no does, pause. he just cranks him out. Like, man, a new kid, too, and a new house, and... Plus, he does a, a horror film festivals and all sorts of stuff. All you got to do is live in Texas. Yeah, I wonder if Howard Lapidus discovered Pantera and brought him down from somewhere. No doubt about that it. That probably did. We'll find out, no doubt, on that show, <laughs> Demons of Decadence. Next! Next, live from the Light Up Lounge on Outlaw Radio, the standard of a beleaguered and tempest-tossed broadcast industry. Oh, God.